0: Hello everyone, I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. On this podcast episode, we are going to continue our look at the history of the HPI. This podcast is going to look at the decade of the 1950s, capacity expansion, HDPE and PP, polycarbonate, computers, and rocket science. If you are interested in reading this article, it is actually published in the April issue of Hydrocarbon Processing magazine. Now, the 1950s marked an evolution in the use of oil by nations around the world. The processing of crude oil into fuels, things like gasoline and aviation gasoline, was imperative for economies to function. Use of oil increased significantly in many countries' total energy mix. For example, the use of oil was imperative during reconstruction efforts in Western Europe's post-World War II. Petroleum products in Europe's total energy mix increased from 10% at the end of World War II to 21% in the mid-1950s and upwards to 45% in the 1960s. Now, across the world, nations were investing in new refining capacity to satisfy demand for refined fuels. One of those first refineries to start up post-World War II was the Ras Tanura Refinery in Saudi Arabia. That refinery began operation approximately one month after the end of the global conflict, so roughly about October 1945. By the early 1960s, the Rastanur refinery expanded production capacity from 50,000 barrels per day to 210,000 barrels per day. Additional refinery capacity increased in other nations and regions, including India, Southeast Asia, the U.S., Western Europe, and the first refineries in Africa. So two refineries were built in Algiers, Algeria, and Durban, South Africa in 1954, followed by refinery construction in Angola, Ghana, Nigeria, and Senegal, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. now The 1950s was also a time of new technological discoveries for the refining and petrochemical industries. These included new refining and petrochemical processes to produce higher octane fuels, new derivatives of polyethylene, the evolution of catalyst design, new chemical products, the adoption of computers and plant operations, and the advancement of rocket fuels technology. So let's first look at catalytic research and development advances. So after World War II, demand for high-octane gasoline increased globally. Fluid catalytic cracking capacity witnessed a significant capacity build-out in the 1940s to produce high-octane fuels for the Allied's war effort. In turn, researchers developed new technologies to advance refining processes to produce higher-octane fuels. So for example, the U.S. added approximately 4 million barrels per day of octane-improvement capacity so examples of those would be catalytic reforming, isomerization, alkalization, and hydrotreating. So they increased that directly or indirectly during the 1950s by 4 million barrels per day. And another process called platforming which was invented in the late 1940s by Vladimir Hansel of UOP was instrumental in the eventual removal of lead from gasoline. The process also used a platinum catalyst to produce gasoline with a higher octane rating, which is an unconventional approach at the time because of the cost of precious metals. Now, around the same time, hydrodesulfurization was commercialized, and today most refineries have one or more desulfurization units. In the 1950s, fluid catalytic cracking processing technology started to incorporate zeolite catalysts in the reaction. Now, due to their molecular structure, Zeolite catalysts are extremely effective in the reaction process. They have higher performance at lower pressures. In the early 1960s, the effectiveness of zeolite catalysts was also instrumental in making the hydrocracking process economical. The modern-day hydrocracking process was actually developed at Standard Oil of California's Richmond Refinery in 1959. That company, of course, is now Chevron. That refinery also installed the first perizylene unit in the United States in 1954, and within 10 years, global hydrocracking capacity increased by a factor of 1,000, reaching approximately 1 million barrels per day. Now we'll turn towards high-density polyethylene, polypropylene, and ziegler natta So in 1951, J. Paul Hogan and Robert L. Banks were conducting catalyst research at Phillips Petroleum Company's research complex in Bartleville, Oklahoma. So according to literature, they set up an experiment using a nickel oxide catalyst, but included small amounts of chromium oxide. In addition, they fed propylene, along with a propane carrier, into a pipe packed with catalysts. The result was that the chromium had produced a white solid material. The two chemists had produced a new polymer, crystalline polypropylene. While using the same chromium catalyst, Hogan and Banks conducted research to produce a new ethylene polymer. Now, within a year, the two chemists discovered a new process that used far less pressure than the polyethylene process invented by Imperial Chemical Industries in England. Hogan & Banks' process required only a few hundred pounds per square inch versus the polyethylene process that required 20,000 to 30,000 pounds per square inch. The new process produced a high-density polyethylene. The discovery of high-density polyethylene and polypropylene launched the Phillips Petroleum Company into the global plastics market. Now, The company marketed their new discovery under the name Marlex. The new polyolefin product line became immensely popular as the basis for a toy developed by WAMO. The toy maker used Marlex to produce a round plastic tube that they sold under the name Hula Hoop. Now, around the same time frame, more than 4,700 miles from the Barterville's Research Lab, German chemist Carl Ziegler was experimenting with ethylene at the Max Planck Institute for Coal Research in Germany. Ziegler's goal was to synthesize polyethylene of a high molecular weight. However, each reaction was unsuccessful due to contamination of nickel salt. Now, after testing several different metals to counteract nickel salt contamination, he discovered titanium-based catalyst was immensely successful at accelerating the reaction process. Ziegler's discovery led to a new process to produce polyethylene without using high pressure and temperature. He also discovered that produced polyethylene consists of very ordered, very long straight-chain molecules. Now, Italian chemist Giulio Natta, heard about Ziegler's discovery while working at the Italian chemical company Montecantini. After Montecantini purchased a commercial right to Ziegler's new catalyst in Italy, Natta proceeded to conduct research on Ziegler's work, focusing not on ethylene like Ziegler, but on propylene polymerization. Through these endeavors, Natta successfully produced isotactic polypropylene, which Montecantini began to produce on a commercial scale in 1957. Now, by x-ray investigations, Natta was able to determine the exact arrangement of change in the lattice of the new crystalline polymers that he discovered. Ziegler and Natta's research and development of catalyst polymerization became known as Ziegler-Natta catalysts. For their work, both men were awarded the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1963, and this catalyst is still in use for polymer production. Through the work of Hogan, Banks, Ziegler, Natta, and other professionals aiding in the research and development of these chemists, High-density polyethylene and polypropylene have produced new products used extensively in many different applications, raising the standard of living for people around the world. Since being discovered in the 1950s, both polypropylene and high-density polyethylene have witnessed their market value surge over the past 70 years, eclipsing $100 billion and $70 billion, respectively. So now we look at the commercialization of polycarbonate and emulsion technology. Although first discovered in the late 1890s, Polycarbonate did not find commercial use until the late 1950s. The polymer was first created by German chemist Alfred Einhorn while working at the University of Munich in 1898. Dr. Einhorn is best known for synthesizing the local anesthetic procaine, which became known as Novocaine, a numbing agent primarily used in dental procedures. Now, prior to his discovery, cocaine was actually the commonly used local anesthetic, which had some undesirable side effects, including toxicity and addiction. According to literature, Dr. Einhorn was attempting to synthesize cyclic carbonates and produce polycarbonate by reacting hydroquinone with phosgene. However, no commercial use was found for this material. Now approximately 30 years later, Wallace Crothers and his research team at DuPont created polycarbonates while working on the development of polyesters and nylon. An account of these discoveries, polyesters and nylon 66 are actually detailed in the February issue of Hydrocarbon Processing's History of the HPI segment. However, Crowther's team did not find a commercial use for the produced polycarbonates. In 1953, a commercial use for polycarbonates was discovered almost simultaneously in two different parts of the world. While researching polycarbonates at Bayer, Research and Development Laboratories in Utergen, Germany, Dr. Herman Schnell created the first linear polycarbonate. Approximately one week later, Dr. Daniel Fox also discovered the same compound while conducting research on new wire insulating material at General Electric in Schenectady, New York. Both Schnell's and Fox's polymers were chemically the same but differed structurally. So, for instance, Schnell's polymer was a linear polycarbonate and Fox's polymer was a branched material. Both Bayer and GE filed for U.S. patents in 1955, leading to legal challenges on the rightful owner of the technology. Eventually, Bayer was awarded the patent. However, the two companies did agree that the patent holder would grant a license for an appropriate royalty. This agreement allowed both companies to develop and market their own polycarbonate technology. Bayer began marketing their product in 1958 under the trade name Rowland. GE began commercial production in 1960 and marketed their product name under the name Lexum. The GE Plastics division was created in 1973, and it was later acquired by the Saudi Arabian chemical company, Sabic, in 2007. And of course, Sabic divested the subsidiary in 2016. Now, over the next 70 years, polycarbonate has evolved and is used in a multitude of products for everyday life. The tough plastic is used in many applications that require transparency and high-impact resistance. These include in the production of windows, protective eyewear, electronic components, so things like electrical and telecommunications hardware. It's used in construction materials, materials within the automotive and aviation industries, and of course some other niche market applications. Now the late 1940s, early 1950s also witnessed the advancements of acrylic emulsion technology. The technology was invented by scientists at Rahm & Haas. The company was actually instrumental in creating plexiglass. Now to find a new product to market, the company's research department, which was led by Harry Nier, conducted experiments on acrylic monomer synthesis. The research built on earlier work by IG Farben, which was the German chemical and pharmaceutical conglomerate, scientist Walter Reap. Now after modifications, Nier invented a new semi-catalytic process called the F-process, which resulted in the production of vast qualities of cheap acrylic monomers. However, the company did not know exactly what to do with their newfound discovery. Now, one idea came from two scientists at the company, Benjamin Klein and Gerald Brown. They suggested the aqueous emulsion technology could make a great house paint. At the time, most paints were solvent paints. However, they emitted an odor, they were toxic and flammable, and they were hard to clean up. So in 1951, Rahm and Haas built an F-process plant in Houston, Texas, in the United States, and produced their first plant emulsion product in 1952. It was named Roplex AC-33. The product had several benefits versus solvent-based paints. In other words, it had a low odor, it was easy to clean up, had a resistance to cracking, and was environmentally friendly. Romm Haas perfected the product over the next two decades, introducing a range of exterior and interior paint products with different finishes. So things like flat, semi-gloss, and gloss. Now, by the early 1970s, Roplex AC-33 surpassed Plexigas sales for the company and created a new line of acrylic paints to rival solvent-based paints. So now we're going to switch focus here. We're going to look at closing the loop. The computer-integrated manufacturing era begins. So on April 4th, 1959, Texaco started operations on the first direct digital control computer at a refinery. The system, which was a thomson ramo Woodridge RW300 computer, or TRW RW300, it was installed at the company's 1600 barrel per day polymerization unit at its Port Arthur refinery, which is located in Texas, in the United States. Now, the initiation of this system closed the loop in the first fully automatic computer controlled industrial process. So, the installation of the system began several years before startup. TRW and Texaco engineers worked for more than two and a half years on a feasibility study for converting the plant to full automation. It was a 318-page report, and it provided robust detail on all actions the system would have to monitor. This analysis provided a basis for Texaco engineers to design the instrumentation and control system for the unit. Now, the initial goal of the computer system, which totaled about $300,000, nearly $2.9 million today after you adjust for inflation, the goal was to raise the plant's efficiency by 6% to 10%. Now, the work on the computer was described succinctly by Texaco's chief process engineer at the time, Charles Rickner. He said, It gets an analysis of incoming gas and outgoing gas. It senses and measures pressure, flows, and temperatures. It calculates catalyst activity. Then it weighs all these together and decides what the processing unit should do to get the most product for the least cost. Rickner continued, Finally, it sets the controls and rechecks its figuring. Now, this computer accomplished these tasks in a matter of seconds. Now, the RW300 computer was able to accomplish more measurements faster than refining personnel could ever hope to achieve. So, from literature, for example, the computer could read dozens of recorded controllers that indicated pressure, temperature, and flow, and then relate the readings that indicated the level activity of the reaction or condition of the catalyst. The computer could then calculate the complex interrelationships of the process, all in time to reset the controls to keep the plant operating at maximum efficiency. Now, The computer could conduct these readings every 5 minutes, 24 hours a day. The success of the computer system led to the adoption of numerous installations over the next several years. The second RW300 computer for the processing industry was installed at Monsanto's Chocolate Bayou Texas Petrochemical plant in 1960 followed by B.F. Goodrich's chemical plant in Calvert City, Kentucky, also in the U.S. Several other installations of the RW-300 occurred in the early 1960s, including at BASF's plant in Ludwigshafen, Germany, Gulf Oil Company's catalytic cracking plant in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States, Petroleum Chemical's ethylene plant in Lake Charles, Louisiana in the United States, among others. Now IBM also introduced its first multi-purpose industrial control system, which was called IBM... 1710 in March of 1961. That computer costs about $111,000 to $135,000, which, when you adjust for inflation, is about $1 million to $1.27 million in today's dollars. And it was used for a variety of sampling in the interpretation of data in the processing and manufacturing industries, including quality control, industrial process study, and process optimization. Now, the system was first installed at American Oil's Whitting Refinery in Indiana, which is in the United States, and that was installed in 1961, followed by additional installation at Standard Oil of California's El Segundo Refinery in Richmond, California, and DuPont's Akrona trial Plant in Gibbstown, New Jersey in the same year. From the late 1950s to the early 1960s, more than 40 computer-controlled systems were installed in the chemical and petroleum sectors. Although initially expensive, The use of computer systems revolutionized hydrocarbon processing operations and provided significant benefits to operating personnel and plant production. This period, later which became known as the computer-integrated manufacturing era for the hydrocarbon processing industry, transitioned the refining and chemical industries into a new computer age. Computer systems would continue to evolve over the next several decades, providing new enhancements and benefits along the way. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is rocket designs as fuels evolve and, of course, the space race begins. So, production of various fuels and gases have been instrumental in the development of space exploration and satellite technologies, especially in the construction of artificial satellites. For example, Kevlar, which was invented in the 1960s by DuPont, helps protect satellites in orbit from the harsh conditions of space. And, of course, there's been fuels for propulsion. Now, although the origins of rocket propulsion go back several centuries, for example, the Chinese used tube fills with gunpowder, which were called arrows of flying fire, to repel the Mongols during the Battle of Kakin in 1232, modern rocket propellant technology traces its roots back to the mid-1900s. Now, the era of modern rocketry began with theories derived by the Russian rocket scientist Konstantin Tovolsky. Now, his work, Exploration of Outer Space by Means of Rocket Devices, which was published in 1903, put forth the idea of both utilizing rockets for spaceflight and using liquid propellant for rocket propulsion. These ideas in his research on the subject inspired future scientists that would revolutionize rocket fuel development over the next several decades. For this, Shostolsky is known as the father of modern astronautics. So the first successful liquid fuel rocket test was conducted in 1926 by Robert Goddard. Throughout his research, Goddard discovered that using liquid fuel provided more acceleration versus other forms of propulsion, such as gunpowder. His rocket design had the combustion chamber and nozzle at the top of a frame made of two vertical tubes, which would then carry the liquid fuel, which was comprised of liquid oxygen and gasoline, from the tanks at the bottom to ignite the rocket. So on March 16, 1926, in Auburn, Massachusetts, in the United States, Goddard's rocket blasted off the launch pad. The rocket flew for two and a half seconds, and it reached an altitude of 41 feet. The launch proved that liquid fuels could be used to propel rockets, setting the stage for the evolution of rocket engine designs, which would eventually lead to the use of satellites and space exploration. Now, although Goddard's discovery was revolutionary, he kept his findings mostly secret. His work was barely known until the U.S. Smithsonian published his theory, which was called A Method of Reaching Extreme Altitudes. However, several media outlets openly mocked his theories. For example, the New York Times dismissed Goddard's theory as lacking basic knowledge learned in high schools. And of course, the publication did print a correction in July 1969 as the Apollo 11 mission launched on its historic mission to the moon. In the late 1920s, the world's first large-scale experimental rocket program began under the leadership of the German rocket technology pioneer Fritz von Opel, who was actually nicknamed Rocket Fritsch, and other associates including Max Valier, who was one of the founders of the German Spacelight Society. The Opel RAK significantly advanced rocket and aviation technology, especially in propulsion. In 1928, the group developed its first liquid-fueled rocket, which used benzol, which is a coal-tar product consisting mainly of benzene and toluene, as fuel, as well as nitrogen tetroxide as the oxidizer. The research and testing completed on Opel RAK led to the development of Germany's V-2 rocket, the world's first long-range guided ballistic missile powered by a liquid propellant, which used liquid oxygen and ethyl alcohol. After World War II, several nations used the V-2 rocket technology to develop their own military missile programs, as well as advanced space exploration. These initiatives were supported by hydrocarbon processing companies. For example, Air Products was commissioned by the U.S. to build plants that could supply large quantities of liquid oxygen and nitrogen to support the country's emerging missile and space program. And after Russia successfully launched Sputnik into space in 1957, which, as a side note, that satellite used kerosene T-1 as a fuel and liquid oxygen as an oxidizer. After that, Air Products was awarded a contract to supply liquid hydrogen to the United States Air Force and later to NASA to advance the country's rocket technology to compete against the Soviets during the Cold War and Space Race. The U.S. eventually created Rocket Propellant 1, which is a highly refined form of kerosene and liquid oxygen. So these fuels aided the advancement of rocket technology, leading humans to break the boundaries of space and place satellites into geosynchronous orbit, significantly involving the way the world communicates, navigates, and explores not only Earth, but the distant cosmos. These advancements would not have been possible without the fuels and products produced from the hydrocarbon processing sector. Again, we want to thank you for listening to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column.